Guardian Unlimited. Hello, I'm Alison Benjamin and this is Environment Weekly. Coming up on this week's show, a captain on board a ship in the Southern Ocean tells us why he's trying to stop the Japanese fleet from killing a thousand whales. Two crew members were both uh, seized, assaulted, tied to the rails, and then uh, about a half hour later brought up and tied to the uh, mast, the radar mast on the top of the ship. One of the founders of Britain's environmental movement is fuming after being ignored over the government's nuclear option. So pulling a technological mega-fix out of the hat, if you like, although in this case it's a potentially lethal white elephant as the mega-fix, that just looks easier from a political point of view. Plus, a former Jain monk who walked from Gandhi's grave all the way to Britain explains how spiritualism is linked to climate change. This world is managed by realists. So I say the realism of the realists is unreal. The real realism is realism of values where ecology and economy go together. And no, we didn't make him walk all the way here just for the podcast. This is Environment Weekly from Guardian Unlimited. First, the annual clash between the Japanese whaling fleet and green groups has kicked off. Greenpeace and Sea Shepherd International are both trying to disrupt the planned slaughter of almost 1,000 whales. The Japanese claim they need them for scientific research. On the line now is Sea Shepherd founder Captain Paul Watson, who's on a ship just off the Antarctic. So, Captain Watson, what's, what's been going on? We found the uh, entire Japanese whaling fleet, except for the Nishan Maru. There were five vessels. And as we approached them, they scattered in different directions. And uh, we followed one called Yushan Maru Number 2. And uh, two of our crew went on board to present a letter to the captain uh, saying that he was in violation of international conservation law and also to inform him that the Australian courts had just ruled that the uh, Japanese whalers were banned from the um, the Australian Antarctic Territory. The uh, two crew members, uh, Benjamin Potts from Australia and Giles uh, Lane from uh, Britain were both uh, seized, assaulted, tied to the rails, and then uh, about a half hour later brought up and tied to the uh, mast, the radar mast on the top of the ship. And then uh, after a couple hours were brought back into the ship, and that's where they are right now. Um, they sped out of, out of sight, we don't know where they are, and they're being held hostage on board that Japanese whaler. They're being held hostage, what, until you give up uh, this anti-whaling? We don't know what their demands are. They haven't uh, responded to any uh, of our radio messages. We've been in touch with the Australian Federal Police, and I've put a complaint of kidnapping against the Japanese. Uh, So far, we have no idea where they are, how they're being treated, or what what the the intentions of the Japanese are. So so how does this affect your campaign to try and stop uh, a thousand whales being caught by the Japanese? Well, they haven't killed any whales for the last five days, and I don't think they're going to be killing any whales for the next five days. Uh, we've been chasing them, and, um, you know, they're all, all the entire whaling fleet outside of the whaling area right now. The harpoons are all covered, and uh, we've got them on the move. 
The Japanese are accusing you of being an eco-terrorist. What, what's your response to that? Well, it all depends on what the definition of an eco-terrorist is. I, I look on that as somebody who terrorizes the environment, and in that respect, they're the eco-terrorists. But as far as being a terrorist, you know, I travel freely between countries on my Canadian passport. I'm a, U- a U.S. resident. Uh, I don't have any uh, criminal record, and uh, I'm not wanted anywhere, so I don't know. It's just all name-calling. But, but you are na- renowned for your unorthodox methods, such as ramming the Japanese ships. Isn't that correct? I uh, do use those kind of methods against criminal operations. We're not a protest organization. We only intervene against illegal activities, illegal shark finning, fish poaching, uh, illegal whaling. Yeah, we've sunk nine whaling vessels, rammed numerous vessels over the last 30 years, but I've never been convicted of a felony because uh, in every respect uh, we're, we're dealing with poachers, we're dealing with criminals. There's no difference between what these guys are doing and elephant poachers going out and getting ivory illegally. Greenpeace are out there as well, and that uh, you two aren't on the greatest of terms. Well, Greenpeace is about a thousand kilometers from us now with the Nishan Maru, and they're heading somewhere towards South Africa. Uh, but uh, we've offered to cooperate with Greenpeace. Uh, we offered to share our helicopter with them, to do a search pattern with them. We even offered them the coordinates. In fact, I gave them the coordinates for these boats today, but they're refusing to cooperate with us. Uh, they're, they're saying that we're violent, although we've never injured anybody in 30 years of operations. Uh, so I think the real problem is that I'm one of the co-founders of Greenpeace, and uh, I think they have problems with that. I don't know. But uh, we've always uh, been willing to cooperate with Greenpeace. And what happens uh, with, with the two captured uh, members of your crew? Well, we don't know. Uh, the uh, Japanese said last year if they caught any of our crew that they had taken them back to Japan in custody and charged them. Uh, but we don't know what they would charge them with. But uh, right now we've got both the British and the Australian governments working on their release, and uh, we will continue to uh, search for and pursue these boats. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we, that just remains to be seen. OK, thanks very much, Paul. Before I introduce you to this week's team in the pod, here are some of the environment headlines from the papers. The Independent asks, can the world afford this car? Guardian Unlimited reports on the warning from scientists that biofuels may not deliver CO2 cuts. Flap dies down after Jamie Oliver's battery of criticism over chickens. Those puns appeared in The Times, by the way. So with me in the studio to discuss these eco-issues is Larry Elliott, The Guardian's economics editor, and Lucy Siegel, ethical living columnist for The Observer. Hello to you both. Hi there. Hello. Now, there's been a lot of talk about the world's cheapest car, the Tata Nano. It was launched in India last week. It costs around £1,300. It has one windscreen wiper, no radio, no boot. And if you want air conditioning, you have to get the deluxe version. But environmentalists are calling it a nightmare because if everyone there who could afford a Nano bought one, the number of cars in the country could theoretically multiply by 20, leaping from 5 million to 100 million. In turn, that would lead to a gigantic increase in CO2 emissions. So Larry, do you think it's right that the West, which has enjoyed decades of car ownership, should tell the Indians that they shouldn't have one? 
I think it's quite hard to take the moral high ground on this. After all, our car ownership is something like 40%, so there are about 400 cars for every 1,000 members of the population in Britain. In India, it's something like seven cars for every 1,000 members of the population. So it's quite hard for us to say to the Indians, you shouldn't have what we've got. Um, but on the other hand, it is absolutely true that if the Indians were to increase their car consumption to the same sort of levels as, as we've got, then the, the impact on the environment would be absolutely enormous. I was speaking to Digby Jones, the Trade Minister, who is, is actually in India at the moment, uh, this morning, and he was saying that this car is actually quite environmentally friendly. It's actually more environmentally friendly than most cars you'd find on British roads, but it would have to be really, really environmentally friendly to make up for the fact there's going to be a heck of a lot more of these cars if the Indians start consuming to the levels that we do in the West. Lucy, what's your view? I mean, we hear that pollution in India's big cities is already a a major problem. It is a massive problem and uh, a lot of the talk this week about this car has been about the fact that it uh, is either not more polluting or not much more polluting than a lot of the two-wheel transport that's used um, to um, get people around India's major cities. Um, I I think it's it's really 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 difficult I mean as Larry says you've also got to factor in the kind of peak oil situation as well and you have to kind of hope that the PR and the uh, the whole kind of story has been quite overblown on this and the people's car from India has also been getting you talking on our blog let's start with the thoughts of Optimist 99 it might be a solution for the rural areas and possibly a replacement for the tuk-tuk but for mega cities like Delhi it's not an option that place is crying out for better public transport there's just not enough room in big cities for unrestricted car ownership, unless you want something like Los Angeles. Yes, this is issues for climate change, but that issue is in tension with basic issues of equality. I believe the answer lies in a far more rational, equity-driven global system of carbon taxes and or cap and trade. Unfortunately, this leaves two dilemmas. We are put in the hands of politicians to deliver us the macro solution. And we, as rich Westerners, need to be willing to forgo much more than we currently do. I don't have a car at the moment, but I'm now tempted. Perhaps the Tater can be easily converted to electric? If all Americans are forced to sell their gas-guzzling cars for a nano, then we could stop global warming overnight. And you can join the debate at blogs.guardian.co.uk slash climate change. I'm Alison Benjamin. Still to come on this edition of Environment Weekly, we catch up with Guardian Unlimited's Tread Lightly campaign and find out why sitting down in New York is forcing people to stand up and take action. We've suggested several alternatives, recycled plastic lumber being our favourite one for the boardwalks and also black locust and white oak, which are local and sustainable woods. Last week, the government decided to opt for nuclear power. Green groups are united in their criticism over the proposed construction of new atomic reactors. Many think the nuclear white paper's bad news for Britain's energy security and bad news for our efforts to beat climate change. One of the leading critics is Jonathan Porritt, chairman of the government's own Sustainable Development Committee. I think it's very disappointing, to be honest. The study that we did and shared with government now nearly two years ago highlighted so many disadvantages about putting more emphasis on nuclear power. And although we acknowledge some of the advantages, of which there are undoubtedly a few and they're important, we came to the very strong conclusion that the disadvantages outweighed the advantages. And that was actually reflected in the public consultation that the government, of course, also undertook after losing the court case 
that Greenpeace brought. So in a way, we feel that many of the points that we raised were not sufficiently taken into account and are therefore disappointed at this decision. On reading the uh, the whole thing, it was 190 odd pages giving the decision, uh, the Sust- Sustainable Development Commission only had three um, mentions of which one was pretty cursory anyway. What does this say to you about how government is going about treating its advisors? I think Tony Blair decided some time ago that the UK absolutely had to have nuclear power in the mix. Gordon Brown was agnostic at that stage. Since becoming Prime Minister, he seems to have fallen in line with the decision that Tony Blair took. So the whole process really has been about justifying an a priori decision that was taken on strategic grounds. So the advice that a body like the Sustainable Development Commission puts into the process is necessarily um, minimized by big picture decisions taken by a government, by the executive in a government of this kind. And I feel that's a shame. I don't think they've listened to the case as carefully as they might have, but I'm not terribly surprised by it. And one has to be careful here. We are, after all, only an advisory body. Uh, we offer the advice. The government is still the executive body, and they act on it, and that's the way the system works. But at the same time, I mean, you are the only body the only advisors in Britain on sustainable development, which is, after all, supposed to be a core of government policy. So it, 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 it can't say very much for, for what government is, is, is pursuing at the moment, perhaps. To be fair, the government has listened to many other aspects of the advice that we've given them over the last few years. So this is not necessarily a sign that the government never listened to our advice. But I think that the thing that is really disturbing for us is the failure to understand the kind of paradox that I see at work here And the paradox is that the more urgent dealing with climate change gets, and it really gets more urgent month by month, the more urgent it gets, the less relevant nuclear power really is. And it's less relevant because to be relevant to any climate change strategy, solutions have to be found on waste, on decommissioning, on proliferation issues, on cost issues, and so on. And quite frankly, solutions have not been found on any of those issues. Now, if those solutions had been found, then nuclear power might, in some people's eyes, have a possibly small role to play in some climate change agenda. But without solutions to those problems, the government's acknowledgement that we're not likely to see anything out of a new nuclear power program in this country until 2020 reveals just how poor the understanding of the implications of climate change still exists in government. The understanding still is in government. The truth is that the Labour government has got very little interest in those different approaches, transforming the economy, decarbonizing, decentralizing, and so on. It just hasn't got any real interest in those. And it hasn't shown any imaginative leadership in persuading citizens to follow that kind of route. And not very happy Jonathan Porritt there speaking to John Vidal. We're off to the States now for our campaign of the week. The New York Climate Action Group has been trying to persuade Mayor Michael Bloomberg to phase out the use of tropical hardwoods across the city. They're used for benches in all its parks, as well as the decking on its bridges, including the Brooklyn Bridge. My name is J.K. Canepa. I'm with the New York Climate Action Group, and we're on a park bench in City Hall Park. The bench is made out of an ancient rainforest wood, and all the benches that I see are made out of it. And uh, we're under the shadow of Mayor Bloomberg's City Hall right now. We formed last year, we were inspired to form by a man named John Seed, an Australian rainforest activist and deep ecologist. 
and he was making a tour around the world. He's still advocating that we organize locally for climate change. Our most effective actions would be local. And what more effective place can we be but New York City? So we had a tremendous response, a lot of passion and fire, and people came together. And the biggest plum that could be picked was this tremendous issue of the devastation of rainforests to make New York City's boardwalks, park benches, subway ties, bridge deckings, just on and on it goes, tree after tree going down to um, feed New York City's agency's purchases for wood that could be done differently. So we joined with Tim Keating, who founded Rainforest Relief, and he and his group came together with us, gave us a tremendous amount of history, guidance, information, and uh, support, and we started meeting with agencies. Recently, we met with the Commissioner of Parks and Recreation, Adrian Benpe, and he told us at that meeting, uh, he confirmed that the city would no longer use rainforest, tropical rainforest wood for park benches, which we were celebrated. That was wonderful. And there's more to do. Um, boardwalks of New York City are made out of EPAs. There are other uses for tropical timber in New York, and we're looking to see that come to a complete end. Mayor Bloomberg in Bali in December ha actually announced that he was looking to pull back on the use of all rainforest wood in New York City and wanted to have his people make a plan to do so within 60 days. We've suggested several alternatives, recycled plastic lumber being our favorite one for the boardwalks and also black locust and white oak, which are local and sustainable woods. That was J.K. Kanepa from the New York Climate Action Group. And if you know of any local green campaigns anywhere in the world that you think we should feature on this podcast, tell us at blogs.guardian.co.uk slash ethical living. Next, much of the environment debate is driven by doom, gloom and disaster. But Satish Kumar, who trained as a Jain monk and founded the Schumacher College for Sustainable Living in Devon, has different ideas. He says a reverence for nature needs to be at the heart of the world's thinking about environmental issues. John Vidal asked him how can spirituality play a part. Our relationship with the earth has to be based on the level of our caring and our love and our reverence for all life. At the moment... Our environmentalism is very scientific and very utilitarian. We look after the earth because it's useful to us. We look after forests and rivers because it's useful to us. So everything is valued in terms of its usefulness to humans. Spiritual uh, ecology and spiritual environmentalism says that irrespective of its usefulness to humans, earth and all life on, uh, on the earth and whole natural world has intrinsic value. And therefore, we have to have a love and respect and reverence for all life. And love of the earth, love of nature, love of the forest, love of the animals, love of the rivers, love of the beauty of the natural world is a spiritual quality. That's relationship. Spirituality is very different from religion. I'm not talking about religions, because religions have a kind of theology and a belief system and all that kind of institutionalized systems. I am talking about 
spirituality which is based in our compassionate and caring relationship to each other among humans and relationship with the natural world. But many people would say this is completely unrealistic. You cannot um, have a world which is governed by, by these spiritual values because the economics and the, uh, the reality is, 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 is missing. What would you say to that? I think those who have claimed to be realistic have brought us to the brink of disaster. Who created global warming? Those who are realists, the, the leaders of the world, the business leaders, the industrial leaders, the political leaders, the economists. They have created this economic growth, economic growth, economic growth. This has become the mantra of our uh, world, which is ruled by the so-called realists. So I say your realism is not realistic because your realism has brought the world to the global warming, to climate change, to wars. Who is fighting wars? Who is organizing wars? Who is managing wars? All the realists. Why we have so much poverty in the world? Half of the humanity goes to bed without food. And this world is managed by realists. So I say the realism of the realists is unreal. The real realism is realism of values where ecology and economy go together. But, but, the, but, but, but surely, can you imagine a government, a British government with, with your values? Yes, I can. Because happen? I'm not talking about religious uh, um, connotation. I'm not talking about that you have to become um, uh, a, a government uh, driven by uh, Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism or, or Christianity or anything like that. I'm saying there are spiritual values and those spiritual values have to be at the heart of our politics, our business, our economics. Otherwise, our economics with our spiritual values is like a kind of prostitution. Um, uh, uh, once E.F. Schumacher was asked the same question when he wrote an essay called Buddhist Economics. People asked him, Mr. Schumacher, what Buddhism has to do with economics? And Schumacher said, Economics without spiritual values is like sex without love. Lucy, do you think Satish is right, that we need more spiritualism in the environmental debate? I believe very strongly that social justice needs to be put with the environment all the time. So I'm immediately suspicious of things that are just green or eco or initiatives that don't have um, a, a social justice part to them, a component to them. I think spirituality is a very different point indeed. And I think it kind of runs the risk of being interpreted as a religion actually and I think it's that's where we cross over into this very dodgy territory which I've spent years trying to liberate the movement from you know just with my own work or what I do or the way I see it which is is the kind of crystal hugging you know crystals and kaftan mm -hmm. kind of wave which I think you know lacks substance and I like a little bit of life cycle analysis and I like a little <laughs> bit of cold scientific realism with are my environment. A, are you a real realist or an unreal realist? <laughs> I, I'm probably quite unreal but you know I, 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 I just think I just think it can kind of be an indulgence I think it's you know uh, there's fantastic creativity to be found with people who approach the environment and ecological issues from from a spiritual uh, perspective but I certainly don't think it's for everyone I think it has trapped the ecological movement in a, in a very niche place for a, for a long time and I don't actually think that ecology and economy would be exempt just because you don't have a spiritual component I think they I think that's a very valid argument by itself 
So, Larry, is, it, is this all just sort of hippie shit? And isn't it hard-nosed realist arguments that win over the politicians and the economists at the end of the day? I think the politicians are deeply suspicious of the idea that people are motivated by environmental or spiritual needs um, and that when it comes to it they are much more likely to vote for the party which looks after their material needs that's sad but I mean there was an occasion when the, the Tony Blair came into the Guardian and spoke to us it must have been a year before he left office and um, he was talking about climate change being the big issue uh, the one some forthcoming summit he was going to <clears throat> and I asked him you know what what, what he was going to do about it was he going to actually stop people from using uh, air travel was he going to tax it more heavily or stop the expansion of Heathrow airport would he actually put this commitment into practice and he said that's not realistic politics that's what people want to do and I my government is not going to do anything which is going to stand in their way. It's a, it's, a pointless, it's a pointless and vain exercise. So that was his argument, really, that when it came to it, people wanted to go on those flights to Spain and to Eastern Europe and long-haul flights to the States to do their Christmas shopping, and that if you tried to stop them, you would get a backlash uh, from, from, from the people. Now, I mean, I think that Satish is probably right, that this is a sort of... This is the road to perdition, ultimately. I mean, going down this road, so, some, at some point, politicians have got to be brave enough to say to people, I think, that there is more to life than just the GDP and growth and uh, ever more consumption. OK, well, if you want to learn more about Satish's ideas, read the full interview on our website at guardian.co.uk slash environment or watch the beautifully filmed Earth Pilgrim, A Year on Dartmoor, on BBC Two. <laughs> Finally for this week, here's how you can help offset some of the environmental problems we've discussed. Jessica Aldred's here to tell us about this week's pledge for Tread Lightly. If you don't know what that is, shame on you. It's Guardian Unlimited's online community helping you to start living a low-carbon lifestyle. The latest figures show Tread Lightly has now helped around 4,000 people save more than 31 tonnes of CO2. That's the equivalent of turning off a coal-fired power station for 12 minutes. That's up three minutes on last week. This week's pledge, which you can make from Friday, is about turning down your water temperature by 5 degrees centigrade. This slows your carbon footprint by using less energy to heat it up, and it can also keep your energy costs down so you'll save money. You can share your thoughts about this week's pledge at blogs.guardian.co.uk forward slash ethical living. And here's what you've been saying on the same blog about last week's pledge, which was swapping a short-haul flight for train travel. I live in the UK, but my partner's family's in Australia. That's a long-haul flight every couple of years that we simply aren't prepared to give up. But we are trying to counter this, admittedly slightly. We've instead decided to avoid short-haul flights. We'll still be going to northern Spain in a couple of months, but taking the ferry to Bilbao instead. Sometimes change is good. Taking a train instead of flying for short distances may actually end up being a surprisingly pleasant experience. I wouldn't dream of flying anywhere. I don't understand this pussyfooting around the topic... Why is it so fashionable to think it's against people's human rights to give up something? Lucy, have you reduced flying or are you planning to fly less this year? I have reduced flying and the thing that I've, has sort of stopped coming my way or happened fairly quickly was uh, travel pieces, which I used to get in the, at the start of my career. It was quite nice, actually, and uh, I don't get any more. Larry, do you think the train's a viable alternative to flying? It's flipping expensive to go by train. I mean, that's the problem. I mean, you know, I went with my my wife's doing a project up in uh, Birmingham, and I went with her on the train the other day. 
and it cost me something like £110 for a return trip from London to Euston. Now, had we sat in our car and driven up to Birmingham and back, it probably would have cost us £30 between us or something, and petrol is opposed to £200. I mean, those, those, the economics of it are really wretched, I think. There's not that much of an incentive. Yeah, people can write in and say, well, you should have booked it three months in advance and got an apex fare, sure, but <clears throat> not everybody does, and it's the convenience of just being able to pop in your car and drive up there when you feel like it. So... I just, I just wonder about the economics of rail travel. What, it, what needs to be done, I, I suppose, is much, much more heavily subsidised rail travel. I, I don't get the, imp- I, I may be wrong. I don't get the impression that rail travel is as expensive compared to car travel in continental Europe as it is here. I just think it's exorbitantly expensive. Um, I mean, that was just for a second-class fare. Goodness knows what it would be for a first-class fare. I mean, it just, it just seems to me to be, it's very difficult to get people to do the right thing if it's going to cost them a heck of a lot of money to do so. I think. Okay, you two, on your bikes. That's all we've got time for. So that's it for this edition of Environment Weekly. My thanks to Larry Ellett and Lucy Siegel and my producer, Andy Duckworth. Don't forget to give us your feedback on anything you've heard. Click on blogs.guardian.co.uk slash ethical living. Environment Weekly will be back next week with Leo Hickman and David Adam joining me in the studio. And John Vidal will be at the World Future Energy Summit in Abu Dhabi. I'm Alison Benjamin. Thanks for listening. Guardian Unlimited.